Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to our special program series, and we have a very noted speaker this evening to speak to us on the history of the blind and blindness. And uh, we'll introduce him shortly, but I'll tell you that his name, he's the new Dr. Brian Miller, and we're so proud of him. And, uh, you know, he got his doctorate this summer, and we're all celebrating. It's great. And he's a real civil rights activist for blind people. Okay. History of the Blindness and the Blind. Representations, Institutions, and Archives. An International Perspective. Paris, France, June 26 to 30, 2013. Organized by the Singer Polignac Foundation, the Research Center for the History of Modern Thought at Université Paris, University of Paris. And I can't read all these French words. I apologize. Brian can help us on that later. Um, okay. And the National Institute for the Young Blind. For the first time in nearly 15 years, some 50 blind and sighted scholars from around the world gathered in Paris, France, to share their research on topics related to blindness and the blind in history. Over the course of four days, presentations were given in French, English, Polish, Japanese, Portuguese, and a myriad of other languages on topics including the blind in medieval European festivals, opportunities for resistance among blind students and teachers in residential schools for the blind in the United States, and Chinese blind massage therapists forming gills to protect their rights. The academic conference included a visit to the school where Louis Braille taught in the 19th century and to Couvray, but he can help us on that, the place of Braille's birth. The hope of this gathering was to build a network of researchers, writers, and archivists who want to preserve and promote the history of the blind around the world. The organizers of this landmark colloquium invited Dr. Brian R. Miller, a blind historian from the United States, to give a presentation on his own research into blind civil rights movements. During this hour's conversation, Dr. Miller will talk about the meeting in Paris, including a brief description of his own presentation and an overview of other topics covered by fellow blind and sighted attendees. There will be time to discuss what might be some promising or neglected topics in blind history, as well as the school where Louis Braille taught um, his birthplace. Oh, he travels around Paris as a blind person and general observations about global perspectives on blindness. Dr. Miller will explain to listeners where they can find the papers online as well as links to the video recordings of the presentations in both French and English. And I want to say before I introduce Dr. Miller that we have the links. He sent them to us. We will disseminate them to all of our lists. And um, I intend to listen to them, and I thank him very much. Without further ado, I will unlock this and present Dr. Brian Miller. Dr. Miller, welcome to the special program series of Accessible World. 
Thank you for the, uh, the, the terrific introduction. I'm very uh, pleased to be here this evening to talk a little bit about what I think was a, a remarkable uh, event and um, I think a, a promising uh, sort of down payment on the future of uh, academic research into the history of blindness and the blind. Um, I am going to spend just a little bit of time you know, talking about the, the, the conference itself, because I think it's of, of some interest uh, uh, as it is uh, a part of the history of learning about blindness and the blind itself, uh, and then maybe share a little bit about my own research, as you mentioned, and uh, some of the other topics that were shared by other presenters, and then uh, we can uh, have a discussion about what are some uh, other historical topics that might be of interest uh, to all of us and that we could explore uh, hopefully in the near future. Uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, the uh, purpose of the conference uh, was to try and establish a network of academics, researchers, and archivists that have been working in the field of blindness and the blind all around the world but have never been able to get together and share their their research, share their resources, their interests, their concerns, and develop a, a healthy exchange that could be ongoing and really build a community of scholarship um, across international lines and uh, build a base, a foundation for the, uh, the kind of scholarship that I think a lot of us would like to see in this field. Um, we know that there is a lot of work out there in the field of, of, of blindness that is, that is medically related or that uh, relates to uh, vocational rehabilitation and uh, other topics that are certainly of, of tremendous interest. Uh, but I think many of us would like to see a higher degree of um, attention given to the academic spectrum, that is the academic uh, kinds of research that goes on in universities and really building a, um, a body of work that we can all uh, learn from and share. Um, as was mentioned before, this, the, this conference uh, was a couple of years in the making and uh, really began in Paris uh, under the, uh, the direction of Dr. Zina Weigand, that's um, W-E-Y-G-A-N-D, Zina Weigand, who is a, a French researcher and um, a um, author herself on the history of the blind in, in France and a colleague of some other uh, historians of, of the blind and who are some of whom are blind themselves here in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, it was her idea to begin to pull together this conference a couple of years ago and that really made all of this happen. Um, there were a couple of earlier efforts in the 1990s and 1996. There was a conference in Denmark and another one in 1998 in Paris, uh, but they weren't really of this this nature. They were sort of different kinds of. Uh, they were they were put together by institutions of the blind, not really blind scholars themselves. So this was a, a unique effort, um, uh, the first academically oriented uh, conference, and uh, so the idea was to invite people to come from all over the world uh, to basically present papers or or. Um, projects that they've been working on and give them an opportunity to share those with uh, other scholars. So this was an invitation-only uh, conference, although there were attendees that, that did go. Um, and this um, took place in 
Paris, France at the end of June of this year and uh, lasted for just about a week. And um, I want to uh, just take a moment to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the organizers and, and what a, uh, uh, just to give them some credit for uh, putting this this thing together, and then, then I'll describe a little bit about the, uh, the conference itself. The uh, organizing committee included uh, a number of some of the more preeminent uh, academies or, or associations of academics and researchers in uh, Europe, including the Académie uh, Française, which is a, a very well-known academic um, uh, association, um, the Académie des Sciences de Françoise, uh, as well as the British Academy, and the uh, Academia dei Linci, which is an Italian association of academics. Uh, the committee included academics uh, from anthropology, history, philosophy, and even one psychoanalyst. When you're putting together a conference, as some of you know, it's always nice to have a psychoanalyst on hand to try and keep your wits about you, because these things can be pretty difficult to put together. Um, primary sponsors were the uh, uh, Federation of the Blind of France, or the Fédération de l'Aveugue Française, um, as well as the uh, Institut National uh, de l'Aveugue uh, Jean, or the uh, Young Blind uh, National Institute of the Young Blind, which essentially is the school for the blind in in, uh, in Paris. And I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, as I get into my presentation. Um, as was mentioned, the uh, the conference title was International History of Blindness and the Blind. Um, representations, archives, and institutions, uh, and international perspective. And the idea was to bring together a couple of different themes, topics uh, on blindness. Uh, representations, meaning the way in which blind people are often represented historically through literature, through artwork, and through uh, popular culture. Uh, institutions, uh, usually in the form of schools for the blind or uh, government programs that, as we all know, have a, a large impact on our lives, uh, historically as well as contemporarily. And then lastly, archivists. We had uh, a number of people who joined us who were um, in charge of archivists, or, or pardon me, or archives uh, from around the world, including uh, uh, Jan Seymour Ford from the Perkins School in uh, Watertown, Massachusetts, where they have a very large archive, and, uh, and a few other places in Belgium, London, and Denmark. They had archivists from there as well. And getting at the idea of one of the challenges that we face as blind people in, in terms of holding on to uh, our history is the rather fragile nature of archives that are out there and the materials that are available to us as, as researchers or just as uh, people interested. Um, the conference took place, as I mentioned, in Paris at the Fondation Singer Polignac, which was uh, mentioned by Bob in his introduction. Singer Polignac Foundation is um, kind of an interesting story in and of itself, and they were the host of the conference for the, the five days that we were there in Paris. And um, Singer is a name you might recognize. The uh, uh, Singer was the... Um, uh, Winnaretta Singer. It was the 20th daughter of Isaac Singer. She was born in 1865 and was the heiress to the uh, Singer sewing machine fortune. And her mother was born in Paris. She was the second wife of Isaac, uh, Isaac Singer. 
and she was born in Paris and was um, was uh, Winnerettas mother and was also rumored to have been the model for the Statue of Liberty so kind of interesting historical side note in any case when Isaac Singer died uh, when uh, Winnerettas Singer and her mother moved back to Paris and they um, uh, lived there basically for the rest of Singer's life Singer uh, had a, lo- a long-standing interest in arts, particularly the mu- music and painting. And as many of you know, the late 19th century, early 20th century uh, in France was a very uh, fertile time, uh, particularly as the Impressionists um, came to, uh, to, to dominate the art world. And um, Singer uh, married a, a nobleman in, or a, a prince, and his name was uh, Edmund uh, Polignac. And the two of them together uh, became major sponsors of all sorts of humanities. And um, there's a, just a very interesting um, history just among those two. Um, they uh, were hosts to everybody from uh, Isadora Duncan to um, uh, Dvorak to Debussy to Ravel to Monet to Marcel Proust, uh, the writers, artists, thinkers, uh, musicians from the uh, late 19th and early 20th century all went to this salon in uh, in Singer Polignac's home and um, shared their ideas and their artworks and had a splendid time. And that um, home, which is in the, the heart of uh, Paris in the 16th arrondissement near the, or pardon me, in the uh, 7th arrondissement, which is where the Eiffel Tower is, um, that is now... Um, the, where uh, they host uh, concerts and art installations and, um, as it happens, this conference on history of blindness and the blind. So we were very fortunate to have such a unique uh, place to be able to uh, share our work and, uh, and to, uh, to, to meet one another and to, um, to hold this conference. But um, as I said, if you're interested in the singer history, it's quite a, it's quite a, 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 a lush history. Um, so there were about 44 of us that, that were there, um, blindsided, visually impaired, and everything in between, who uh, came to, uh, to give their presentations. And then there were another 50 or so who were there t- uh, in attendance. Um, and there were 15 countries represented, everything from Canada and the United States to Ethiopia, uh, um, all over all over Europe. And... Um, um, all over Europe, including Japan and Taiwan. Um, and these, uh, these participants were academics, were archivists, and administrators of programs, uh, teachers at schools for the blind, uh, teachers at major universities, uh, indiv- uh, independent researchers, uh, and people who run uh, archives. Um, and just a few more mentions of some of the folks who were there uh, of note. Uh, Henri Jacques Sticker, who is a, a very well-known historian and probably one of the uh, pioneers of disability history, uh, was one of the uh, sort of co, um, uh, di- uh, co-organizers and was uh, there to, uh, to, to host the conference, and he spoke. And um, if you haven't read uh, uh, Jean, uh, uh, Henri Jacques Sticker's work, yeah, it's, it's it's very, very foundational. That's S-T-I-K-E-R, Stiker. 
Um, and uh, uh, Zena Weigand, as I mentioned before, who, who was the uh, what, the other sort of co-organizer, and she is the author of probably one of the best books on the blind in French society from the Middle Ages through the 19th century or the time of Braille. So if you want to read one of the better histories on uh, the establishment of the School for the Blind in Paris in the late 18th century and into the 19th centuries, and the um, um, the rise of Louis Braille and the development of his system. I can't recommend a better book than um, uh, Weygand's. Uh, again, it's W-E-Y-G-A-N-D. I believe that's on Bookshare. Um, Kathy Kudlick uh, from the, that's K-U-D-L-I-C-K, Kathy Kudlick from the Paul Lawmore Institute in San Francisco State University was also um, a organizer of the conference and a um, uh, a scholar. She's a, a, a visually impaired woman who is a, a historian and also uh, presented at the conference. She's written on uh, blind people in Paris and, and has written on disability studies and the issue of blindness in, in many contexts. And um, a couple of others, uh, Georgina Cleage, who uh, is at Berkeley, has also written, uh, uh, she's a blind person, has written uh, several books on blindness. And some of you may know uh, her works, Cleage, K-L-E-E-G-E. -E. Um, so one of the things I thought I might do is just to... Um, take a few minutes to talk about uh, my own presentation and, and some of the things that I talked about. I don't want to spend too much time uh, just on my own work, uh, especially since you can, you can read it online. And you can read all of the presentations and the papers online that, that I'll mention. And not just the papers, but you can also see uh, the video of the presentations. And uh, what's really quite remarkable is you can get them in uh, French or English. Um, all the presentations were translated simultaneously um, by interpreters who were in a booth, and we all had uh, headsets that we could wear and would, uh, you know, listen in on, you know, the English translation if it was in French, or the French translation if it was in English, or sometimes the French and English translation if it was in Japanese or Taiwan uh, or, or Chinese or Polish or some of the other languages uh, that were part of the presentations. Um, in any case, so my presentation that, that I gave uh, while I was there um, came out of some research that I was doing uh, as part of my doctoral research. Um, I, as uh, uh, Bob mentioned a little bit earlier, I recently did my doctorate in history from the University of Iowa, and I uh, was looking at a number of of things uh, that had to do with the blind movement, uh, particularly in Iowa in the 1960s. And um, one of the things that uh, I was looking at was the history of the School for the Blind in Iowa, um, because the topic of my research was an effort of the blind to take over that school uh, in the late 1960s. And so I wanted to know the history of that school, you know, prior to this takeover event happening. And some of the things I found in the course of that research I thought was really quite interesting, but I didn't have time to explore it in my dissertation, and so I thought it might make an interesting topic unto itself for a later presentation. And one of the funny things about 
making a presentation at one of these conferences, whether it's history or literature or whatever your conference might be, is that you often decide on a topic years before you actually show up and give this presentation. Somebody will ask you to put together a proposal, submit a, uh, a, um, a topic idea, or will ask you what you want to talk about. And you know, two years ago, you say, hey, this is what I would like to talk about. And then a couple of years later, you think, huh, I'm not sure what I was thinking at that time. But anyway, it made sense then. And then there you are, giving your presentation. But in any case, it worked out well. Um, and I'm just going to read, if I might, um, a paragraph or so from the, uh, this kind of gives you the, uh, the flavor of what the presentation was. And, and if anyone has questions, they can certainly ask me later, or um, you can read the whole paper or see the video online. But uh, this, is how I, this is how I started. This presentation derives from research conducted in the course of writing my doctoral research, especially the chapter in which I cover the history of a residential school for the blind in rural Iowa. In the, in the United States. What I was not able to explore in greater depth in my doctoral dissertation was the way in which, in the middle decades of the 19th century, provided a unique space for blind men and women to establish their own schools and to seek to take charge of their own education and that of the generation behind them. This movement was quickly sidelined, however, uh, however, and by the late 19th century, schools became institutions of control of the blind child and adults. Through its rigid control uh, through the curriculum and close monitoring of all school and student behavior. As such, I wanted to pr propose this topic as a starting point, a think piece, as we say in English, uh, to indicate where more research is needed in an area much unexplored to date by historians of the blind and disability, and where I, might, where I think we might find numerous examples of blind men and women seeking to determine their own destiny in otherwise very restrictive environments. And um, that, that's basically the, uh, where I begin. And what I will say about what I, what I was looking at was uh, initially the, the rise of the schools for the blind um, which, as we all know, uh, began in the, uh, uh, in the early to mid-19th century, in, you know, in 1830 to be specific, with the Perkins School, or what would be known as the Perkins School in uh, Boston and then Watertown, Massachusetts, founded by Samuel Gridley Howe. And what, we, uh, what was interesting to me, and one thing that I uh, discovered in the course of looking at this, this school in, in Iowa, was that um, there was this after the initial schools were founded in the New England states and in a few other places, such as Pennsylvania, in the 1830s and 40s, there were a whole second generation of schools for the blind that were established in the 1850s and 60s by blind men who were graduates from these schools that were uh, some, from the first schools that were established in the 1830s. And I was really surprised to see that because in the 20th century, all of the schools for the blind that I had looked at in my, in my uh, research were run by sighted people. And in part, that was what created a lot of the tension, a lot of the antagonism between um, what would later be the blind movement um, made up either of blind activists or of uh, workers, uh, blind workers, teachers, and, and um, um, school 
assistants who are blind and uh, the, the sighted people who ran the schools. And so I was really surprised to see that there were um, actually blind guys running schools in this, this interesting time. Uh, however, very quickly, I learned that those, um, those administrators, those early pioneers, uh, were run out, essentially, or were pushed out uh, by state legislators and by uh, sighted administrators by the 1870s, largely because uh, by that time schools were starting to be funded uh, much more by the states, by state governments, rather than by uh, private donations or by uh, philanthropic um, efforts. And as the, the schools became public and were publicly funded, uh, the blind had less and less of an opportunity to run their own schools. At the same time, the, we know that by you know, the 1850s, we have uh, the first um, raised dot systems, whether it was Braille or New York type or Moon type or some of the other uh, versions of, of raised dot reading systems were circulating um, throughout the various schools. And you know, many of us know that um, it wasn't until the 20th century that the Braille system that we know today was standardized. But in any case, for a period of time during the, the 19th century, I was interested to see the degree to which Braille could be an instrument of resistance or uh, even rebellion on the part of blind students and even some of the teachers. Because back at that, in that time, it was uh, only the blind that would use Braille uh, or whatever system that was employed at the schools. Most of the sighted teachers and administrators could not read it or did not read it. And so I do have some interesting um, early evidences of the use of raised dot systems as a way to communicate with each other, that is for blind people to communicate with each other in ways that sighted people could not access. So you can imagine the opportunities for sending secret messages, sometimes just silly or fun, or other times perhaps more, um, um, more political in nature. And there is one case that I am going to be looking at um, that I have not started to uh, do the, the, the more rigorous research yet, but there was a school uh, in Canada that in uh, the early, early 1900s uh, actually did a, a full-on rebellion against its, uh, its, its superintendent and the, uh, the, the administrators who were there. And so I, um, I want to see how that, uh, how that played out. But, uh, but I think that as Braille became a tool of resistance on the part of blind guys in these schools, at the same time you saw a much more rigid control of the, of the students and the kids themselves um, through the curriculum, through the, the way the day was um, organized and, and with the way in which kids were supervised. And so that was something I was looking at and that my paper talks about, again, as, as a kind of a, a signpost to where we might look uh, for early, early efforts by blind people to organize themselves and to uh, push back a little bit against uh, some of those institutions and some of those people that uh, otherwise would seek to control them. Um, and again, I can, 
uh, recommend to folks that they look up the, the full paper online, or if they have questions, they can uh, certainly uh, feel free to ask me. Um, just a few other uh, presentations at the conference I thought I would mention that I think are, are of interest. Uh, and again, you can look these up as well, but uh, uh, just to give you a little bit of a flavor, a little bit of a taste of the range and scope of the, of the kind of work that was presented and, and, the, and the sorts of things that are being looked at. One of the areas of, of probably greatest productivity in terms of, uh, in terms of history of the, of the blind and blindness is in medieval history, European medieval history. There's, there's a number of really terrific pieces that are out there, books and uh, articles now um, by some really great scholars writing on blindness in the Middle Ages or the medieval period. Um, one of those scholars, Irina Metzler, I-R-I, N-A, Irina Metzler, M-E-T-L-Z-E-R, um, uh, was there, and she has written a book about disability in the medieval period, and she presented on the ways in which uh, um, blindness played out in the churches, particularly how blindness was not necessarily an impediment for priests and clergy in the in the medieval church to continue to perform their liturgical or their um, their priestly functions, and it, it's it's kind of a, a a funny piece in that you see um, tensions within the church between uh, scriptural laws that seem to indicate that people with disabilities cannot you know perform the you know, cannot uh, manage the Eucharist or perform liturgical services. And on the other hand, the practical need of the church to uh, allow for its trained priests to continue to do their jobs, even though they may have gotten older and less able to, to see or to function the way they used to. We all get older and we all get a little bit less able to uh, do some of the things we did when we were younger. And so um, it, it's kind of a fascinating uh, look at how... how um, practicality sometimes trumps uh, rigid rules about what people can do as, you know, with, as blind people. Um, and there's uh, several pieces about medieval uh, history and blindness in the, uh, um, in the presentations, and that's just one of them. Um, one, another one by um, Bianca uh, uh, Froner uh, looks at uh, the ways in which blindness could both be metaphoric as well as actual blindness and how metaphoric blindness, that is blindness that was meant to represent something, was different than actual blindness. In other words, you know, in the medieval times there were all kinds of stories that many people would know about people who lost their sight uh, because of accidents or because of crimes they committed and, and how they might regain them you know, through miracles and what that meant. And um, she relies heavily on a historian, again, that I would recommend if you're interested in this topic, uh, Ed, uh, Edmund Wheatley, W-H-E-A-T-L-E-Y, wrote a terrific book called Stumbling Blocks Before the Blind uh, just a couple of years ago, and that talks about representations of blind people in the medieval period, which I, I think you, um, if you're interested in that sort of stuff, I think you'd find fascinating. Um, one thing that was also interesting was the um, um, 
some of the presentations on uh, how blind people were represented in literature, uh, particularly in uh, 19th century romance novels. Uh, one um, presenter, uh, Hannah Thompson, um, who is a, a professor of French literature in, uh, in Britain, um, looked at all of these pulp fiction novels that came out about blind guys in the 19th century, and they were romance novels. And, and you know, there was a fad, you know, for a number of decades of blind protagonists, you know, either blind from birth or blinded through accidents, um, uh, being the stars of these romance novels. And people just bought them up like crazy, and they were very, very popular. And, and so she talks about, you know, what does that mean? Why, why was blindness such a popular topic uh, for casual readers in um, 19th century France? Um, there is a corollary to that, too, by the way, in the United States in the mid-19th century. There were a whole bunch of books written by blind guys about blindness. Um, that, that's a whole other, whole other topic. A um, couple of great uh, pieces by uh, Stephen Reap uh, about um, the history of blindness in China. Uh, if you have an interest in Asian history, um, I think you would find this extremely interesting. Um, because he looks at both uh, blindness in China, but also how that um, uh, correlates with um, Japan and Korea and Taiwan and, and other parts of uh, Asian cultures. And he looks at it both from a historical perspective, looking at literature, representations of blind people in Chinese literature, as well as um, uh, modern uh, movies. There's a lot of uh, movies in, in, in Chinese popular culture that, that represent blind people and, and uh Either as action heroes or romance figures, and, and you know, and, and what that means. Um, and uh, that, I, I strongly recommend uh, people can take a look at that because uh, it also also looks at the um, pardon me also looks at the development of Braille in Chinese and what a what a complicated affair that was to develop a, 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 a Braille version of, of the Chinese Mandarin language, particularly uh, in the earlier part of the uh, century. Um, there a couple more I'll just mention real quick is the um, the, the there's a, a a transnational history of, of guide dogs um, by um, um, Monica um, sorry, I'm looking for her name here oh Monica Barr pardon me Monica Barr wrote a transnational history of guide dogs uh, Maria Moraish uh, wrote a uh, paper about um, the uh, international development of schools for the blind in the 19th century. She looks at why well, I was looking at schools in, in the United States. She was looking at schools in Europe and other parts of the world. Um, and a, another scholar from Ethiopia uh, presented on how um, the the oral instruction within the churches, the Coptic churches in Ethiopia for a number of centuries allowed the blind to be able to uh, learn alongside their sighted peers for a number of centuries and actually serve in um, clerical uh, or um, uh, church positions because they were able to learn all of the, uh, the liturgies as well as anybody because they were orally transmitted and then how that changed in the 19th century when uh, written forms of education became dominant and uh, blind people were then at a disadvantage until an Ethiopian version of Braille was developed. 
Um, in any case, uh, just one more here. Um, uh, Kim Nielsen talked about Helen Keller. Uh, if you haven't read Kim Nielsen's books on Helen Keller, I strongly recommend them. They're available on NLS and Bookshare. Nielsen, N-I-E-L-S-E-N, wrote a book about uh, both Helen Keller and another book about Anne uh, Sullivan Macy, her uh, her teacher, the called Beyond the Miracle Worker, which I strongly recommend, and I can talk about that if people have an interest. Uh, and then finally, uh, Felicia Cornblue, who is a professor, uh, oh, uh, Kim Nielsen, pardon me, is a, uh, um, a professor of history at the uh, University of Ohio in Toledo, and is also uh, the director of the New Disability Studies Institute there. Uh, and then finally, Felicia Cornblue, another one of the presenters uh, from New Hampshire, uh, presented a, a terrific paper, which I strongly recommend to everybody, uh, about the untold history of inequality. Uh, and it's about uh, Jacobus Tenbrook's uh, legal work, uh, an area which, I mean, most of us know uh, about uh, uh, Jacobus Tenbrook's work in the, uh, in the founding of the NFB and, and uh, blind history, but uh, he was also, of course, as some of us know, a legal scholar and uh, some of the works that he did and how they uh, fed into the civil rights movement uh, for African Americans and, and, uh, and women and other folks. Um, and it's a, a, a terrific, uh, terrific article uh, that, that talks about things that uh, Dr. Tenbrook, uh, that many people may otherwise not be aware, sort of the legal community see him as a hero, the blind people see him as sort of this foundational figure, but those are two communities that don't always talk to each other. Um, in any case, so um, you can see that there was a, a, a broad swath of, of, of interesting uh, topics that were discussed. Um, people came to, to, to share about what kinds of materials they had in their archives and the concerns they had about trying to preserve uh, blind history. Um, we had the opportunity uh, prior to the, actually the conference starting to visit the, um, the museum that holds a collection of materials by uh, Valentin Oui, who is the, uh, that's H-A-U-Y, uh, Oui, who is the founder of the School for the Blind in the late 18th century, and is somebody that um, uh, Dr. Zina Weigand talks about extensively in her book on the Blinder French Society. Um, but they had there uh, some of the, a lot of the original uh, raised alphabet books that were part of the uh, instructional methods uh, back in the late 18th century and early 19th century you know, prior to Braille. And um, it's, a, it's a terrific uh, collection that they have there. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go uh, to Paris and, and, and visit, uh, there, there is a curator there named Noelle, and she's just a, a, a wonderful person. Uh, her English is a little limited, but uh, she'll do what she can to, to work with you to show you some of the artifacts that they have there. Um, and then adjacent to that, we also uh, went to the, uh, the the National Institute for the Young Blind of France, which is uh, the the modern name for the School for the Blind there, where uh, Louis Braille uh, taught um, during most of his adult life. As, as many of you know, uh, Braille went to the uh, the school as a, as a young boy after becoming blind, and um, eventually would become a, a very renowned teacher at the school. And uh, it's it's 
a place you can visit, and there are um, statues of, of Braille you can feel and you can touch, and there are uh, original um, things that you know he used as part of his his teaching, you know, whether it was music, whether it was you know writing. Um, is he still a very powerful presence within that within the walls of that school? And and it's still an active school today. I mean, there are kids who go there and and uh, take classes and live there. And there's there's dorms, there's classrooms, and it's uh, right in the heart of Paris. And finally, I'll just mention we uh, on the the last day we did manage to go to the uh, birthplace of Louis Braille in uh, Coupe, which is about an hour outside of Paris. And uh, again, I think if if, if ever had the opportunity to visit I, I can't recommend it enough the uh, it's it's a small village um, it's uh, in Louis Braille's uh, family home is still there it's kind of a small little kind of a-frame two-story building and the top floor is the uh, living quarters the bottom floor has the workshop where um, his father who was a leather worker uh, had his his tools and where he did his work and where Louis Braille was um, was um, injured and, and that caused his uh, his loss of eyesight. So they still have all the tools there. You can you know, I actually got to hold the uh, this little spike that was apparently the 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 thing that caused Louis Braille to lose his eyesight. And um, there's a little model of the home that you can you can look at and feel and it shows all the different rooms and they're all Braille labeled. And uh, and then um, in the upstairs quarters where the, the family used to live, uh, they have all sorts of artifacts of uh, Louis Braille's uh, inventions, his, his original slate that he used to write with, um, a, a machine called uh, a, a, a graphiton that, uh, that he used to be able to write raised alphabet letters like the regular Roman alphabet, and it's this really uh, interesting multi-key thing that you use to basically uh, use pinpricks to create all the different letters of the alphabet. It takes like 35 little pinpricks to make one letter, so it's quite a, quite a laborious process. But um, he invented that machine and was able to do a lot of writing himself. Um, we had a presentation there by um, the author of uh, Touched by Genius, um, who was... Uh, uh, a, a British man who wrote a, a biography of Louis Braille, and um, um, and then had uh, just a nice time there in the in the village. And so, um, in any case, that was the uh, the, the the overall uh, run of the conference. The um, uh, expectation is that we will continue to share our work and to look to the next time when we're going to put together something like this. We believe in London, uh, probably in a couple of years. Um, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll tip you off to, although it's still very, very early in the works, is that we are also hoping to put together a conference that focuses exclusively on Jacobus Tenbrook's uh, work, his legal work, as well as his, um, his activist work. Um, and that may actually happen sooner than the other conference. But uh, I will stop there um, to allow for opportunity for questions. Um, I think that there's, there's certainly a lot of things we could talk about. I, I would also, I'd be certainly interested to hear from folks um, what sorts of 
historical topics they would like addressed. You know, if we have another history conference, you know, what, what would you like to see explored? What are things that we need to know more about ourselves and where we've come from and where we're going? I think that's something be of interest. I'd like to hear that. I certainly have some ideas, but I bet you all have some ideas as well. Or yeah, I'd just be happy to take any questions that you have. Uh, Bob, does that sound like a uh, plan to you? Absolutely, and a wonderful presentation. I'm so glad that you spoke of Dr. Tenbrook. I hope that they will have such a conference. And uh, I know academicians will only be invited, but boy, I, I just, uh, I'm really charged with that. I would like to hear more about the, the historical topics that you just threw this at us at the, uh, the rise of the gills in Europe. How blind persons survived, you know, must have been terrible to be blind, but they had the gills uh, and so forth. I want to ask one question about Louis Braille. It may be far-fetched, but since his father was in leatherworks, maybe use the awl, which is kind of like a stylus. Was the Slayton stylus invented or prominent when, you know, when Braille was just started? Did Louis Braille have anything to do with the slate and stylus? And then we're going to go to the phone room for a couple of questions and back here to the audience. So that's my question, please. Uh, certainly. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, uh, after holding the, you know, the, the, uh, the owl, you know, which is, um, Bobby, you can maybe help me with the spelling, A-O-L, I think, is that right? Or A-O-L, A-O-L, U-L, but, you know, the tool that is used to, to um, uh, poke holes in leather and help you, you know, thread things with leather. Looks suspiciously like a big stylus. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it's it's hard not to to make the association. Uh, Braille's um, early slate and stylus, you know, the, very much looked like uh, one of those tools. Not as big, not as sharp, uh, but he had essentially, you know, an actual slate. You know, like those slate tablets that had uh, wires that ran across it. And so you had the lines, and, um, and 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 he would use it to, you know, the, this. You know the, this very large version of the stylus to to write with. He also wrote uh, by hand. Uh, there are a number of um, extant letters that he wrote, uh, and I, I, one of the things I, I picked up while at Coupre uh, was a collection of all of the letters that are known to be written by Braille. And there's only about 35 or 40 of them left, and they're you know letters to his mother, his brother. You know, to friends, you know, about his time at school and what's going on in his life, and and they're really terrific. I mean, the letters that he wrote by hand are, you know, he was an educated man, and and he wrote them uh, in you know proper French, but on occasion he also dictated letters when he couldn't get the instruments he needed to write himself or use his his, his graph machine to 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 raise you know to create letters. And the dictated letters are actually phonetic because the person he would dictate to um, likely did not have the level of education he did, and so they had to spell out. In other words, you know, like they wouldn't write, um, you know, the words properly. You know, uh, they would just write them as they sounded. And I think also this may have had something to do with to whom he was writing the letters. You know, the the individuals he was writing to were not often very literate either. So it's kind of interesting to see those different forms of, of his own his own his own letters, um, but uh, but but he was an inventor. You know, he, he, the, the 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 his birthplace, his school, uh, and the the Valentine Uy Museum is just chock full of um, early efforts to try and make this work. 
Thank you for the question. Okay, are there any other questions first from the phone room, please? Anybody, Don, I hear you up there, Ruthann. You guys have questions? And then we're coming back to the uh, the auditorium here. I have so many questions, I guess. Uh, did they talk about the uh, judge in England? Uh, uh, I think his last name was Fielding that started the Bow Street run- Runners. Because when I was on... What? Oh, I'm sorry, Don. Uh, go, go ahead. Yeah, he. they still have his little courthouse with a big Braille cell on the front of it to, to honor. Of course, he didn't have Braille. He came in before Braille was invented, but he he developed the beginnings of the uh, the, the police force in London. That's right. He was uh, John Fielding. He was the brother of uh, Henry Fielding, who wrote, um, I think, uh, Tom Jones and a couple of other... Uh, a famous, uh, not he was a famous novelist, but uh, Tom, uh, John Fielding. You, you know, um, n- no one spoke about that. Um, uh, you know, about his story, but I think it's one that would be really interesting to look at. I mean, we probably several of us have read the the really terrific novels by Bruce Alexander um, that that I think are are very well done. You know, they're they're great mystery novels, but you know, they are also I think pretty historically grounded. Bruce Alexander, who I believe has passed away, unfortunately, so he's not writing those books anymore, um, I thought did a great job of, of, of getting the time right and, and, and actually dealing with the blindness in a pretty sophisticated and, and nuanced way. When but it's a great... Uh-huh. Uh, I, okay. I was wondering, uh, getting to Dr. Tenbrook, I t- took a couple of classes from him and I read the the 14 anti-slavery men, uh, origins of the 14th Amendment, which was uh, uh, quite a class. But uh, the, the, when did he start working with Floyd Matson? Because I think the rest of his uh, his writing was pretty sparse. He really had to read between the lines in that book. <laughs> yeah, I mean uh, that was in, in the early to mid 50s when I really started uh, collaborating with Floyd Matson. There was another gentleman that he he worked with, the Tembroke worked with. Um, in L.A. and and Felicia Cornblue, uh, who I mentioned, who um, is somebody I'm working with to, because uh, she really knows his legal work. Um, who I'm working with to maybe put this conference together. Uh, you know, she's looked at a lot of his work that he did with his prior collaborator, who was a, um, a deaf man actually. In I think he lived in Los Angeles, and this is in the late 40s. We're talking about late 1940s. And uh, that was a, a very prolific collaboration, but it was also kind of a fraught one. They they yeah, they had uh, a falling out, I believe, over one. I don't know for sure, but they uh, yeah, before Matson, he had another collaborator. His name is eluding me at the moment. I, I apologize, but it may have come to me. But uh, I think that's kind of an interesting story as well. But um, but yeah, you're right. His work on the Fourteenth Amendment was what Thurgood Marshall and the folks at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, used uh, to uh, basically make their anti-segregation argument in the Brown v. versus Board of Education uh, lawsuit in the, you know, that led to the decision in 1954. Um, you know, I have a copy of the letter that Marshall wrote to uh, Tenbrook basically thanking him for you know the copy of the book and mentioning how it was a you know a useful item for them to to have and they you know really appreciated it. There's no evidence that they ever met. Unfortunately, it would have been an interesting uh, moment in history for Tenbrook and Thurgood Marshall to meet, but the, I don't believe they did. 
By the way, he didn't teach from it. He gave these horrible hundred-page speeches that were given in those in the days before the Civil War. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Don, we definitely need to hear more from you about that, uh, all of that. Cause, so, so don't don't change your phone number just yet. We're, we'll be calling you. <laughs> Hello, I have a question about. Uh, I don't know if I'm coming. Am I coming through? I presume. You sound terrific. Well, oh, what's your name? Okay, hi. This is Ruthann. Oh, hi. My question is Sorry. about the uh, rivalry or the fight between the persons who were advocating that Braille be the language or the uh, the means of writing, and those that uh, were advocating for New York Point. And I understand it became quite a rousing battle between the two factions, and um, also how it was that Braille actually became the language or the uh, writing methods that, you know, succeeded in being used in the states of America. Yeah, yeah it, it's surprising, too, to, to look at um, how, how recently it really was. It was, you know, in the, in the 1930s that the... Um, yeah, the, the sort of the convention on uh, on, on English Braille, uh, you know, for North America kind of became standardized. You know, using the the you know the the, the Louis Braille version of, of of Braille versus New York Point or Moon Type or some of the other versions that were out there. There were New York Point. There were there were a lot of different versions. Um, uh, Robert Irwin, I think, has a book called War of the Dots about that. Some of you are probably familiar with that book. Um, Looking at the, the the long history of it, but it was you're, you're right. It was about a uh, 40, 50 year fight for sure. I mean, we think uh, Louis Braille died in in, in 1853, and um, you know it was a long time, almost 80 years later, almost to the year that uh, before his system was you know, became uh, the the standard. Um, and I think the the primary reason why it, it won out was because it was easier. It was easier to read, you know, the the, the six cell versus eight cell um, was was easier. Than, I think New York Point, if I remember correctly, has eight cells. Um, someone can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but yeah, six cells was just easier to read. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, but it, it is a great story in of itself. And and you know, again, when I was looking at the history of the School for the Blind in Iowa, and again, it's just one example. Um, you don't have to go that far back to uh, into the curriculum to see, you know, that, that you know Braille wasn't fully adopted till uh, you know till the 1930s. So you had people who were alive until not too terribly long ago who first learned to read New York Point, you know, uh, or or some other system. Usually New York Point in in most schools in North America, but um, so yeah, we're we're not that far removed from it. It's, uh, it's not that long ago. Okay. So, so thank you for the question. I think I think it's a great it's a great story. It's a great, you know, um, uh, I think it's a great topic that deserves a maybe a more up to date treatment. Hello, um, uh, sir. This is Gary Wood. Um, I'd like to ask a question, if I may, about uh, Jacobus Tenbrook. I mentioned some of them. WACP was he was he a black person? Hi, um, this is Michelle Bernstein. You had mentioned that 
there were certain topics that that um, that you might consider for the future. And one of the topics that would be very interesting for me would be the history of people like myself who have low vision or partial vision. And I wondered historically, um, maybe you know, are, are people who are partially sighted, would they have been grouped together with people who were completely blind in the schools? And if, if this is something that is... Uh, discussed at your at your conference is the topic of low vision because I find that people uh, nowadays just don't even understand what the word low vision or partial vision is and tend to, to think of people as either being fully sighted or uh, totally blind and I just wondered if that's a topic that you discuss at, at your conference. Yeah, uh, thank you, Michelle. I appreciate that. That that's a, a very rich topic, as many of us know just from personal experience. That um, y- you know, the uh, most of the world sort of thinks of, of sight as a dichotomy. You know, it's either you have some or you don't. Um, and most of us know that it, it, it's everything in between. And 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 the result of that is that there is an interesting history of how that was dealt with in um, uh, in schools for the blind, for example. You know, it's not until you really get into, uh, so like in the 19th century, for example, uh, you had people with, um, you know, all, all, all manner of levels of blindness, um, and they all more or less learned, you know, learned, you know, the same things um, and, and in the same ways. And it wasn't until... Uh, the late 19th century, when schools started to get rather crowded, that they began to be a little bit more selective about, you know, who got in and, and started to implement new, you know, sort of scientific measurements to figure out, okay, who's blind and who's not blind. And that was sort of the beginning of that, you know, here's the dividing line and trying to figure out, you know, who's in and who's out. That, that's sort of a product of the of the modern you know, the rise of ophthalmology and, and measurement and, and, and all those sciences that go with it. Um, and so, you know, prior to that, it just wasn't as big an issue. If, you know, if you had trouble seeing, you just come on in and, you know, do the best we can with you. Um, there's also some thought that prior to, you know, the modern age, um, you know, low vision wasn't uh, you know, manifest in different ways. You know, it, you know, it's contextual, right? I mean, low vision. You know, in a world where you know there isn't small print to be read. You know, in, in sort of the pre-Gutenberg age. Um, you know, how how much of a disability is low vision? Well, it's it's questionable. You know, in today's world, you know, we're we're very focused on high, you know, sort of visual acuity to, to, to get done what we need to do. And so vision is, is, is paramount, but perhaps in pre-modern times, not as much. Um, in the 20th century, uh, the, and I write about this a little bit in my own doctoral dissertation and my own research, you know, because it had a lot to do with how the, the what we sometimes call the hierarchy of sight got built into the curriculum of so many schools for the blind in the course of the 20th century basically uh, dividing the totally blind kids who would learn Braille with the um, uh, partially sighted kids or low vision kids who would be uh, given large print and, and, and have a different curriculum. And and that continues today to be sort of the big question about, you know, you know, what what is the appropriate way to to 
to work with those, you know, both populations. Some say that, you know, blindness training is, is blindness training, you know, whether you have some visual vision or, or, or no vision. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's, as many of us know, it's a big question. But I'll just say one more quick thing. You know, in, some of us are, might be familiar with the uh, schools uh, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s engaging in what was called sight-saving, um, including a lot of the schools that I looked at. There was a period of time where low-vision kids um, were given what was called a sight-saving curriculum, which meant that they learned Braille because, you know, the idea was that um, not using your eyes meant saving your eyesight. So if you could read Braille, that meant you, weren't, you, meant you weren't straining your eyes to read regular print. And, you know, so they would wear these, you know, these bibs that would basically hide the page, and so they had to be forced to read with their hands. They would sit in low-lighting rooms to, you know, again, preserve their eyesight, you know, the too much light, too much use of the eye would, would wear them out, basically. And that was proven pretty quickly to be not very scientifically sound and a little bit silly, uh, but uh, that, was a, that was a popular thing for, for a number of decades. I went through a sight-saving class, and they believed that, I think. Yeah. In San Francisco, they called it sight conservation class. But yes. it, we call them sight-saving. They, they, I guess they thought you, you, you used up your sight if you or something, but yeah, that's right. It was like a usable commodity, and 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 you know it was a, it was a selling point, right, to parents. Like you know, what your your son or daughter will, you know, we have specially calibrated techniques to allow your daughter to to conserve their eyesight, right, not use it up. Yeah, that's that right. Okay, let's uh, very good. Let's go for three more questions. I want the audience, please, real short. And let's keep it briefer, please. Um, although I could stay here for hours, I really could. I want to tell Gary that Dr. Tenbrook was not black. Uh, the other thing is he had great correspondence, which Brian may have read, between Sam Irvin of Watergate fame and Dr. Tenbrook on the constitutionality, the Constitution of the United States letter of Sam Irvin. Senator Irvin had high respect for Dr. Tenbrook. And I hope someday we can get Brian and that lady from New Hampshire, to go over the life of uh, this man whom I consider, just me, one fan, to be probably the greatest blind man in the United States in our last century. But that's uh, quite, a, quite an achievement. I'm sure Brian can find 10 others who are equally as great. But he really impacted the lives of blind people. Um, okay, who's got Carla? Do you have a question? Carla's a teacher. Let's get her into the act if she wants to ask one. Okay, anyone else? Wide open here. Yes, actually, I do have a question. Carla, I was having some problems with my microphone squealing. Anyhow, um, I was interested in um, something about the conference itself. Um, when, when you were all at the conference, was there ever a time when you compared the various educational approaches that the countries that were participating took in the teaching of Braille? And and did, did you get into the various grades of Braille um, in the various languages and how they were used and if they were taught all in one or if um, people were taught uncontracted braille or you know just the various practices uh yes uh, there, there were uh, several presentations uh, i mentioned one of them briefly uh steve uh, Reap from um, brigham young university was there and his topic was on on, on china and the history of blind in china and he looked at uh 
uh, the different forms of Braille and some of the challenges of, of reproducing, uh, you know, the quatratonal uh, nature of the of the of the Chinese language, uh, or the Mandarin language, anyway, and, uh, and and how to transliterate that into uh, into a raised dot system. Um, another woman from Poland uh, gave a really interesting uh, presentation about uh, the development of Braille there and challenges of of um, of getting that. Uh, uh, produced, and uh, I, I and I think she did speak to. I don't remember some of the particulars about um, um, about uh, you know which grade level to use. You know, grade one, grade two. I, I mean, just on a personal level, I thought it was quite interesting to uh, um, see the differences in uh, French Braille. I, mean, I, I was I had the program in Braille and was reading the French Braille and just kind of looking at some of the different ways in which they represent things. I mean, it looks obviously very familiar to us, you know, because we borrowed that system. Um, but they have a few different ways. Of, the way they represent numbers is a little bit different, and, and to some of the some of the some of the grade two type stuff is, is a little different. Um, but one of the things that we all of us talked about quite a bit, particularly from an archival perspective, was uh, how do we preserve this material? You know, I mean, particularly because you know a lot of the um, a lot of the stuff that's in the in the school archives, you know, most of the schools for the blind, which is where you find a lot of this stuff, um, uh, yeah, they're, they're schools. You know, they're not archives per se, right? I mean, the Perkins School does have an archivist, a full-time archivist, and, and a full and, and an archive of materials going back almost 200 years. But most schools don't. You know, they just have piles of stuff in a basement with a bunch of drawers and. You know, some of it you can get to, some of it you can't. And you know, how do you preserve some some of this this Braille? How do you read the raised line stuff without you know damaging the Braille uh, or whatever system it's in? And how do you also um, how do you read some of the systems that you know most of us today don't know how to read? I mean, you know, so we need we need a Rosetta Stone to kind of help us. Uh, navigate New York Point or Moon Type or some of these other, um, you know, London Type, some of these other systems uh, that none of us know how to read regularly today. In other words, you know, we need to, we need to figure out how to translate the Braille if, if we can read it. And then, so it, it's a challenge. I mean, you know, to, and, and a lot of us are very concerned about losing that history, especially as a lot of schools for the blind close. You know, what are they going to do with that material? You know, most often they just throw it away. Um, so, I mean, you know, for those of us out in the field, you know, you know, as, you know, around the country, you know, when we hear of a school closing, I'm always wondering, okay, what are you doing with all of your, your historical, you know, uh, documents? And how, how much of that's in print, how much of it's in Braille, you know, and, and what can we do to preserve it? Uh, figures of some of the, the historical people as far as if, you know, any effort is being made to preserve or to find out what they did. I, the person that comes to my mind is Dr. Jacob Vallotton. Uh Until fairly recently, most of us had never heard of this man and saw right. how he had, um, you know, become a successful pulmonary doctor because of, you know, even though he was a blind person. And I'm wondering if there's any types of uh, efforts being made to, you know, to... Uh, preserve or even to find some of these people that may have had quite a history? Yeah, um, 
Well, and, and that's partly why we uh, had this conference was to um, to develop that that network, you know, to kind of create a critical mass uh, of people who can talk to each other, you know, across the country and across the world, and and and, and find out about these things and pass them along and say, you know, who would like to write about this? You know, there's somebody out there working on this because. Um, because you're right, you know there, there are a, a lot of terrific stories out there. I, I have a list of about you know, just that I put together myself of about 25 different research projects that I would love to, to dig into. You know, and, and uh, had to put some of them on hold while I was finishing my uh, my doctoral work. But um, you know, the, you're right. We will lose them if we if we don't uh, if we don't make an effort to preserve them. So. So that's probably what we're trying to do with this, uh, with these conferences, is to create a systematic way to to, to find out about these. Well, I hate to to wind this down, but uh, Brian, Dr. Miller, I want to thank you so much for this outstanding presentation. It almost reminded me when John, President Kennedy, uh, had uh, great intellectuals at a dinner. Pablo Casal and all the others, and they came and he said the the other, only other time we had such a meeting is when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Well, the great thinkers on blindness met in Paris, and we thank you so much, and we're so proud of you. A great representative of America, an activist uh, in the organized blind movement, and we thank you so much for being here this evening, and I'll give you the final word, please. Well, well, thank you so much, Bob. I really appreciate everyone's time, and um, I I do hope that uh, you all will take the opportunity to go and look at, at, at some of these papers. You know, kind of find the ones that interest you. Uh, they're not they're not really long papers, and they're very accessible, uh, both in terms of uh, you know using accessible technology and and in terms of the language. You know, they're they're academic works, but they're but they're they're not overly, you know, dense or obtuse. I think uh, I think you'll find them very interesting, and, th- and that's where we could really get into the meat of uh, of some of these things. I, I think you'll really enjoy them. And again, the videos are there too. You can watch the presentations, and you can listen to them in French or English. So, if you want to work on your French, it's a great opportunity.